This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My focus today is really on, from the standpoint of a psychiatrist and really a psychotherapist, um, how do we how do we deal with challenging times? And my particular modality is something called acceptance and commitment therapy, which really focuses quite a bit on, on bringing a willingness to have our experience and values connecting with what's important to us in, in challenging times. Now, I don't have to say, I don't have to say too much about what is particularly challenging about um, this last year. There's a meme that's been going around, which I think speaks volumes which is something like this. And um, I'll say my commentary, but I think that in particular 2020, for a variety of reasons, this is occurring in, in the standpoint of COVID, but multiple other reasons have, have brought up a level of, of uncertainty, of challenge um, for, for families of all form, of, of, for people of all ages. And one of the things that's particularly oftentimes in challenging times, although we we will latch on to or we focus on what's happening that's that's difficult. It's often the uncertainty that accompanies the circumstances that really provokes anxiety and distress. In challenging and uncertain times, particularly like the last year and what we're still going through, our minds are really provoked to predict and avoid danger. And it's almost an automatic response of the human mind. When we're faced with uncertainty, when we're faced with unexpected and unpleasant realities, the mind almost kicks into a a place where it tries to figure what's going to happen next, what's the danger, and how do I avoid that? And this really is our evolutionary heritage. There's there's nothing fundamentally wrong about that. Our human ancestors and, and, and the species actually that predated us survived because of this predictive function and this this natural bias towards trying to predict and spot danger. The problem isn't that we do that. It's that, in fact, our minds are so good at doing that, that we're rarely aware that it's happening. It really can be an almost automatic function. I'm going to talk a little bit about how acceptance and commitment therapy approaches this aspect of the mind. But it's sort of the water that we swim in. Many of you may have uh, had a story attributed to David Foster Wallace, um, uh, who was giving a commencement address where one uh, fish says to two younger fish, morning boys, how's the water? And the one fish looks at the other and says, what the hell is water? Right? So that it's so ubiquitous, this function of the mind, our ability to sort of think what's next, that we often don't realize it's happening. And particularly in uncertain times, that can leave us with this predictive function feeling out of control. And so I'd like to frame what I'm saying with a quote by Viktor Frankl, who is a psychotherapist, um, who's actually an Auschwitz survivor, and um, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And this quote, I think, is a very powerful place to stand. Everything can be taken from a man or a person, but one thing the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And this is an individual who really actually found meaning and wrote about the importance of of connecting with meaning and values 
in really probably the worst of unimaginable circumstances in a concentration camp. So it speaks to the fact that even when we are out of control of our circumstances, there is a function that we can come back and ask ourselves, what in this circumstance is important to me and how do I relate to that? Just in a nutshell, what is acceptance and commitment therapy? And it really essentially asks the question, how do we create a rich, full, and meaningful life while accepting all the pain, whether that's physical or emotional pain, that inevitably goes with it? And that involves bringing a willingness to hold our internal experiences, all the sensations, all the emotions, while making and keeping behavioral commitments that reflect our personally held values. In other words, given everything that we're feeling, how do we still identify what matters to us and move in that direction? So I want to say something about this word values in terms of how we think about it in acceptance commitment therapy, because values really we're talking about desired personal qualities of being. Now, values often have a kind of moral overtone to it, and they're not goals. So we can think of goals as stops on the way whether we have academic goals, whether we have relational goals to have a partner, whether we have work goals, those goals are just expression of our values. Values are what make the goals meaningful, but they're not the goals themselves. Values are not rules, right? Values have a sense that they're being chosen and expressed, not followed. So even though many values may align with personal, religious, or moral principles, They're not fundamentally given by that. They're chosen. They're what we hold as dear and important to us. And they're not desired states of others, right? It's not about important that that I be loved or I be respected. They're really qualities of personal being, that place that we can come back to in ourselves, no matter what's happening around us. As I mentioned earlier, values are really what gives life meaning. And values can be expressed in any circumstance, right? That's why it can, in in the setting of illness, in the setting of school closings, uh, the social distancing that we've all had to be with over the last year, these things may constrain how we express our values. In other words, we may need to give up some goals. Some goals may not be available to us, but we can still create new goals based on our values, Right? Values underlie that deepest response to the question, how do I want to be about my circumstances? But why is life so hard? Even in the best of times, we know people, and us ourselves, we sort of sometimes feel we're suffering or it feels like a struggle. And from the perspective of ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, human suffering is not a distinct pathologic state. It's not that like when we're normal, everything's fine, and then suffering means there's something wrong or that's abnormal with us, right? Suffering really arises when there's two fundamentally normal processes of the human mind that go undistinguished. These things that the water that we're swimming in and we're not aware of the water. And that's, to use some technical terms, cognitive fusion and experiential avoidance. So this idea of are your actions in your head or in the world? This is what we mean when we say cognitive fusion, this kind of feeling of living in our head as if what's happening in our head is happening in the world. 
And then we can ask, are behaviors primarily about moving towards what matters or away from something that's an unwanted experience? So in this graph, if we really think about those two questions, in the domain of experience, we can be down at the bottom, there's mental experiencing, all thoughts, feelings, stories, judgments. And then there's the five senses experiencing, the being in the world, the out there, what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can speak. And then there's the direction we're moving. Are those, are we moving away from what's unwanted or are we moving towards our values, right? So to, to put it in clear terms, that mental experience includes all that future tripping, all that predicting the future. And oftentimes in the context of challenging times, we end up here in this lower left corner where we end up in our attempts to predict the future and avoid danger, we're sort of in our heads and we're imagining what's next and we're imagining everything that could go wrong and how we fix it. And although that's a normal function of the human mind, that often leaves us moving away from what matters to us and out of actually contact with what's in front of us in the moment. In other words, cognitive fusion is this way in which we can relate to thoughts, mental images, memories, and personal narratives as qualities like of the self, or direct reflections of the truth, I should have said that truth with a capital T, rather than mental events that are happening in our mind. And again, this is a human universal, and it really is the source of the power of language and symbolic representation. So there's nothing pathologic about cognitive fusion. If you've listened to a good storyteller, simply by their words, they can transport us and bring us into the feelings, the images of a world that they create in, in, they create in their speaking. And that's beautiful. And that's wonderful, right? So cognitive fusion underlies the capacity to have fantasies, to have dreams, to envision futures that inspire us, that move us. But it's also a route to suffering, right? Because it's also in cognitive fusion that we can re-experience painful histories, even when it's gone, even when it's past, we can still relive it in our mind. We can pre-experience dreaded futures in these times of uncertainty. Our mind can imagine, well, what's next? What's going to happen next? And then suffer through that as if we're living through it ahead of time. We can relate to interpretations about ourselves and the world as if they're the truth. It's hopeless. The world's messed up. I'll never achieve my goals. And we live like that opinion of the mind is actually an objective truth. And we can end up substituting mental ruminations for behavioral engagement. We can actually worry about something as if we're doing something about it. And I don't know how many of you look at The Onion, which is a sort of a humorous news site, but I've actually given this clip uh, to my, my patients at times, and there's a little political bent to it, but it was very relevant for many people I was seeing in November. The headline is, a woman hopes she did enough worrying to help the Biden campaign. And I won't read this word for word, but, but essentially it documents humorously 
an individual who deeply cares and is concerned about the outcome of a campaign and yet has now living as if worry is action. Now, a, clearly a bit extreme as, as, a, as a humorous uh, news site would, would um, present. And yet it has a ring of truth that many people could, can find in. Right. So there's this cognitive fusion that even though we can create for ourselves fantasy, uh, creative futures that inspire us, so too can that creation of fear, a feared future, start to live as real. Now, naturally, the other f- feature of the human mind is once we've identified a feared or dreaded future, is that we want to avoid it. And it's absolutely normal for any human being or any creature to avoid pain. Again, very, very normal. And yet there's a quality in which when we avoid pain in an unworkable way, we end up being more gripped by it. And I I use the, the metaphor of a woven finger trap quite a bit in my clinical practice because it speaks often to the way in which when we're trying to avoid something that the effort of avoiding it and the attempt, the attempts to get out of the avoidance actually leave us more gripped by it and more disconnected from what matters to us. So unworkable avoidance are those things that take us away from what matters to us. That can include, particularly in the last year, many, many people using any kind of digital distractions whether it's YouTube or Netflix, social media, we can withdraw from, from others. And some of that we've had to, we've, we've sort of been forced to withdraw from others. Um, in some individuals, it can look like using various substances in order to try to get rid of unwanted or unpleasant feelings. Resi- it can also look like resignation or sour grapes, now, we don't think of resignation as avoidance, but sometimes if, we're, if we feel thwarted in our goals, we can often decide that it wasn't really that important to us in the first place, or it was not really, wasn't really possible. And even doom scrolling, something that's come up over the last year where we, we end up looking deeper and deeper in the news, trying to find certainty. And again, that's an aspect of avoidance too, because Quite frankly, most of us have have to deal with deep levels of uncertainty. And so that attempt to go deeper and deeper in the news, even as it increases our anxiety, can be the mind's way of trying to avoid the uncomfort and discomfort of uncertainty. And yet all those things can lead us to become more disconnected from our values, what matters to us. So in any challenging situation, whether it's personal, interpersonal, at the family level, at a societal level... We have these thoughts and feelings that are evoked. And when we get hooked by what our mind says about these things, and we end up focusing on how do I move away from those feelings, that's what we call hooked. And yet, if we can step back and realize that we can hold thoughts and feelings that arise in a situation and yet move towards our values, that's really what is really the the, the choice point of any challenging circumstance. So really in in the setting of what many of us have been dealing with, 
the question of, of eliciting values can look something like this. Given everything that you're dealing with, including all the uncertainty and all the unknowns, which minds very much resist, what way of being would leave you and those around you inspired and engaged? Now, values are highly personal. But this is an example of some of the values that either myself or my patients have had to articulate and bring forth in the last year. And, you know, I encourage you as you reflect what matters to you to you can maybe resonate with these values or find your own, but they can include things like courage, perseverance, connection, contribution, creativity, love, community, patience, and there's many, many more. But what all of these have in common is there is no circumstance in which this value can't be connected and can be a basis for action. It may look different than it would in times that seem perhaps less challenging, less uncertain. And for some values, for example, like courage, um, there really is no courage without fear which is the willingness to face fear and take action, right? So in practice, what is this, what might this look like? And obviously there's a range of experiences that people have, but I want to just go through the kind of conversation I might have with a patient who's struggling in terms of uh, their response. What experience are you trying to avoid or get rid of? What have you done? What are the actions you've taken that are away moves? How has it worked? And then what does it cost you? When we really look at putting our efforts into moving away from unwanted experience, and we look at it in terms of our values, are we more or less connected with the values and what matters? And then the fundamental question becomes, if you could be willing to have that unwanted experience, whatever that might be, how could that leave you to be freer to express your values. So just here's an example that that I think can resonate with many people from the standpoint of the last year. What experience are you trying to avoid or get rid of? I'm anxious and bored at the same time. I don't know when this will end or if things will ever go back to normal. What have you done to avoid the boredom and anxiety? I mostly just stay in bed and look at my phone. I alternate between going down news holes and watching cat videos, right? So here we have the anxiety, the fear of the unknown, what's coming. The mind saying, I don't know if things will ever go back to normal, the creating a dreaded future. And then the avoidance, looking at the phone, either trying to deal with the uncertainty by reading more news or watching cat videos as a distraction from anything that might be provoking anxiety. How has that worked? Well, it it passes the time, but every time I read the news, I get more anxious. But then when I watch a cat video, I start to feel gross and worry if I'm missing something important. And then when my family tells me to get off the phone, we just stare at each other. What does that cost you? Does it leave you more or less connected to your values and what matters? Well, this individual might say something like, I used to feel creative and engaged, but now it seems like I'm spinning my wheels. And even though I'm around my family more, we are really disconnected. 
and I just get more anxious. So here's the question in this, in this case example. If you could be willing to simply be with the uncertainty of these times, and simply is not easy, by the way, and all the regulations that are out of your control, what would those values of being creative and engaged look like? In the current circumstances, well, with willingness, I could be engaged by reaching out to family and friends and ask about their experience of these days. I could also be creative about looking where I can make a difference locally. This conversation would be much, much longer in a clinical context. But what I'm trying to give a sense of is that there's this shift as we start to move from avoidance back to values, that we don't actually have to get rid of anxiety or frustration or any of the negative emotions that come up to re-engage in our values. We need to be just willing to feel those things and then reconnect with what matters to us. And from that place, ask, given what matters, what might I do in these challenging circumstances? Again, that's just the the questions that that really take us from avoidance, unworkable avoidance, back into values expression. Now, I want to say something about mindfulness, because acceptance commitment therapy is often referred to as a mindfulness, a third wave of mindfulness-based therapies. And I feel very heartened by by the expansion of mindfulness, it's really, I think, become a buzzword, not just in medicine, but culturally lately in a way that's very, very positive in many respects. There's mindfulness apps. I think that it's, it's widely, it's being widely talked about, but it's fundamentally in the context that we're talking about acceptance commitment therapy, about a willingness to have our experience and contact our experience. And I think one of the downsides of the ubiquity of mindfulness and its images is we have images like this, where mindfulness is somehow associated with breathing deeply, sitting on a cliff in Hawaii, looking blissed out. And I think this really does a disservice to what the power of mindfulness is, particularly in times that feel like they're provoking and stirring emotions that are anything but blissful, right? So there's this idea of mindfulness and meditation that this, that, that somehow it, we should be, it's this Buddha nature and we should have an empty mind. And if we sit and we do mindfulness that I, I can't do it right. My, I'm too busy. I'm having too many worries. But in fact, that's really just the, the, some inherited notion of what meditation or mindfulness should look like. In actuality, this is what most meditation practice practitioners will tell you that they experience. It looks like the trading pit of a commodity floor where there's multiple voices in our mind all screaming at each other. That is actually what is to be expected. Well, the question is, well, why would anyone, why would anyone do that? Because something emerges in our awareness when we really practice mindfulness. And this is a quote from John Kabat-Zinn, who's probably done as much to promote the application of mindfulness in certainly the medical community over the last uh, generation as anyone. 
And mindfulness is the awareness that arises through paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. Mindful awareness of the present moment is the antidote to the undistinguished, the water of cognitive fusion. When we are fretting about what was and what shall be, and essentially living in a past or living in a future, we miss the present moment. Even if the circumstances of the present moment are less than what we would want, we then spare ourselves suffering that which has already happened or suffering that which has yet come to pass. So in essence, if we look at this model of psychological flexibility, how ACT sees where suffering occurs and where actually there is some space, it's mindfulness is really about this middle piece, being able to notice the difference. And what I experiencing now, is it happening in the present moment? Is it in my awareness or is it in in the past or in the future? Is it out there in the world or is it a judgment of my mind? Mindfulness allows us to become more aware of this. And there's many, many ways of there's apps that you can learn. I'll give you, I'll give you some books to resources, but I want to just leave this because I think it's not hard to find resources around mindfulness. I think it's hard to get this, this sense that it's really about noticing where our experience is rather than trying to shift it or become relaxed or blissed out. It also allows us to notice where, what am I motivated by? Am I primarily moving away from pain, away from something that's unwanted, which there's nothing wrong or abnormal about doing that as a human being. But when we do it, that we, when we do it in a way that often leaves us then moving away also from our values and what matters, it's sometimes not worth it. And so again, mindfulness, that present moment awareness allows us to see where is my attention? Is it in my head or is it in my body? And is it moving on? Is it focused on avoiding what I don't want? Or is it allowing me to move toward what matters irrespective of what's happening? And in these challenging times, So in a way, mindfulness practices, whether it's meditation, whether it's guided imagery, are really ways of starting to see those choice points that sometimes are very hard to notice when that automatic fusion and avoidance is just running. So that's just a little taste of how acceptance and commitment therapy um, would approach these challenging times. And I, I, I very deliberately left it, um, left it open because the particular challenges, the particular values, the particular unwanted experiences that we're all dealing with are somewhat unique. But I hope that um, those of you who are spent the time to watch this have been able to find something in yourself as a place to stand in these challenging times. And Um, As a couple of resources, I did mention John Kabat-Zinn, who's not a practitioner of acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, but really brought forth mindfulness-based stress reduction 
um, which is actually offered at Osher Center. And um, he has a book on full catastrophe living, which is really how to bring mindful meditation into times where there's stress, pain, illness. Um, and then another book, which I, I recommend widely is by Dr. Russ Harris, who actually is widely known as a trainer and has really very accessible resources on acceptance and commitment therapy. And again, his, his title of this book, The Reality Slap, How to Find Fulfillment When Life Hurts. And again, that's bringing forth, how do we bring forth values, even when our circumstances are, seem to be causing us pain. And then also a couple of resources, just more, more COVID specific um, that are put forth by Dr. Russ Harris. Um, he has a, uh, a very specific act-based approach to, um, to COVID and face COVID is actually a mnemonic. And he has both a YouTube video um, and a, a open source a PDF on bringing this approach of a values consistent um, willingness to skillfully manage the circumstances of COVID. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.